The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, last aired on December 23rd. Hello there, I'm Peter Mansbridge. You are just moments away from a special edition of The Bridge. April 7th, 2018. It was a Saturday morning. It was a very early Saturday morning. I was in San Diego, California. I'd flown in the night before from Toronto because I was to give a speech on that Saturday morning in San Diego. But all the time zones and everything had got mixed up on time. My body was not into the new time zone. It was still in the old time zone. As a result, I woke up about 4.30 in the morning, and I could not fall back to sleep. So I grabbed my phone, and I thought, well, let's see what's happened overnight. And I went on Twitter. And that's when I found out what had happened the night before near Nipawin, Saskatchewan. Something that would dominate the news in Canada for days. But it also dominated the news around the world, and there was reaction from around the world. On the Friday night, April 6, at a crossroads, an intersection just outside of Nippon, the team bus for the Humboldt Broncos hockey team collided with a semi-trailer. And the results were devastating. 16 people on the bus were killed, many of them players from the Humboldt Broncos team. 13 others were injured, seriously injured. Today's special edition of The Bridge is about one of those survivors. His name is Caleb Dahlgren, and he's just written a book which is being released right now. It's called Crossroads, right? And that name on this story has a lot of different levels to it. Caleb's story is remarkable. So is the story of his parents, who had driven from their home in Saskatoon to Nipawin that night to watch the hockey game between Nipawin and Humboldt. It was a playoff game. They were sitting in a little restaurant in Nipawin, having supper, waiting for the bus to arrive, when all of a sudden outside there were police cars and ambulances racing by. It didn't take long for them to find out what in fact had happened. And they went racing off to the crossroads. Caleb's story is about that moment. It's about his teammates. It's about his family. It's about the incredible frontline healthcare workers. And it's about his future and his determination. As I said, Caleb's a remarkable guy. And when we come back, we're going to hear his story. All right, time now to hear from Caleb himself. He's 23 years old. He's just finishing up a university degree at York University in Toronto. And then he's going to go on to become a chiropractor. That's his dream. It's been a remarkable last almost three years now. Let's hear Caleb talk about it. to talk to you uh, how are you doing first of all like how do you how do you describe your your health situation today 
Well, I'm doing pretty good, honestly. I'm keeping busy in school right now, working out, staying healthy, volunteering virtually, which is a little bit different, and uh, just working hard, I guess, in the background. Just staying really healthy, though, and the only thing really that's bothering me yet, or right now, is my brain injury. The rest is all healed, so I'm very grateful and thankful for that. And what does that limit you to, the brain injury? So, yeah, so the brain injury kind of limits me to... I guess. Oh, sorry. My dog's going off here. That's okay. That's all right. I got a dog too. It'll probably start going as well. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So my brain injury limits me definitely to, I'd say my reading abilities. I definitely have slowed down my reading and it's it's okay. Like I'm able to still read, but it just takes me a little bit longer. So I have an e-reader for that, for academics. And I also get accommodations on my tests for that. But other than that, I mean, like I have to go to bed a decent time every night, try to get at least like eight to 10 hours of sleep a day, uh, just so that that way I can at least feel fully functional and at my highest peak. But other than that, I'm pretty thankful that I have no other issues, no headaches, no really major side effects or things that really affect my life. So what very about grateful. in terms of contact hockey, that's a, that's a no go, right? Yeah, that's a strict no-go. I'm not even cleared really to run, so I can't even go for a jog. So I, no hockey for me, contact at least. Well, you look in great shape. So you're obviously doing everything else right to uh, to ensure that your body holds up to the demands of uh, life. But what are you now? How old are you now? Is you graduating yeah. university? What? Uh, what's yeah. your, how old? So are I'm 23 you? years old, and uh, yeah, so I've, I've been able to ride a bike. I have a, I guess, an aerodyne bike where you go on the hands and arms and then you go with the feet too and that's a good workout that one gets me going and i rollerblade in the summer and i golf so my golf i walk so i really like try to stay active as i can and try to be healthy what's your handicap oh boy i'm probably plus 10 (laughs) i'm not the best not the worst plus 10 is okay like don't complain (laughs) i never got to plus 10 my whole life you know i I got as i think i got to 14 and i was very proud of that but it's a <laughs> that was a long time ago but i still yeah. love golf it's a great game and it, it, it any opportunity to get outside and uh, and do some walking is, is good all right let's talk uh, let's talk crossroads that's the name of the book of course and i gotta tell you when i first picked it up as i would pick up any book you tend to look at the title the author and whatever else may be said on the on the front cover but none of those did I look at when I picked up your book because the picture is so overpowering. The picture mm-hmm. is of you standing at a crossroads and it's not just any crossroads, it's the crossroads. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what it was like to, to go back there. I don't think it was your first time back there, but any time back there must be must present a lot of challenges for you. What, were, what was it like to go there to take this picture? Because you're standing right in the middle of the crossroads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, so thank you for noticing that. That was one of the things I really wanted was to have the cover speak more than just a thousand words. I think if every photo is worth a thousand words, but that one I wanted to be a little bit more. And I wanted to have like a million words because there's so many emotions that that wrote crossroads it licks. And so when I do go back, I, it's hard like you definitely get the memory of the people that were lost at that intersection. And there's also another family across the street that was lost there too. But I also kind of feel a sense of like comfort in that fact that I'm there with the 16 where uh, all their, all of our 29 lives change, but especially those 16. And I feel like a little bit of connection there, to be honest, it's, it's a hard place to go, but I also feel connected and I feel a bit of warmth inside of me and, how fortunate I am to even be here and to be in the fit place shape that I'm in. And so it's, it's definitely, I'd say range of emotions, but the image itself was one that I really wanted. And I'm glad that Harper Collins was okay with using that image and why like allowing my idea to come through because I really wanted it to speak more than just a tragedy. I want to speak moving forward. I want it to speak direction. I wanted to speak positivity. I want to speak resilience uh, hope and in family even because family they were my family so it's uh it has so many emotions and i think that's the cool thing about it is somebody could taste something different from it and it could be something different from it for everybody but you know the bottom line in many ways you know for for so many 
Canadians and for so many people around the world. It, it was a, a story of an, in, an incredible tragedy. And, you know, for a lot of people, they would have a hard time ever going back to a spot like that if yeah. that had been a part of their life. But it says something about you, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is that it says about you, that you would feel warmth there in going back. Yeah, and I think the reason why I feel warmth is because I love those people so much, and they knew that I loved them too. And it was, like, probably one of the most tragic things I could think of I've ever been in my life, for sure. And for me, it feels like a sense of home in the fact that they are like their lives were there and even like the arena too there's it's really hard to go back to that but that's where like some of the best memories were made in that arena and so for me it's just trying to find the best part of them and remember them for the best people that they were and so when i go back it's nice to see all the love that they've received you see their crosses and you see how much people have put things there flowers old sticks beer can like you see all those little things and it just kind of reminds you of the personalities that were on that bus and all of the different lives that they lived and how much life there was left on that bus. And it's really challenging and sad. There's also some beauty in there because I was fortunate enough to even be a part of that and to know those people for who they were uh, before their lives were taken. And so for me or before even all our lives were changed, I was able to know them and create a relationship and a bond. You know, um, the Humboldt Broncos story and that day is kind of frozen in the minds of a, a lot of people. They, they tend to, it's, it's one of those moments that you remember where you were when you first heard it. You know, I, I, I was in, in San Diego. I was given a speech in California when I, you know, I woke up early that morning and there it was on, you know, with the time difference and everything, there it was on, on my phone. And it, you know, it, it, it obviously shattered me and it shattered a lot of other people. But you tend to remember where you were in the moment that you found out about it. Your situation obviously is different. You were there. What do you, what do you remember about that yeah. moment? I only remember everything leading up to it, actually. I don't remember anything afterwards. So I remember us being on the bus and enjoying it, just having like jokes and having a good time. And then um, in front of me, Nick Shalansky said, this is where I grew up kind of thing. And the guy in front of him said, Parker told him that nobody cares. And then people started laughing. And then Jackson Joseph uh, behind him said, oh, I care. And then all of us like kept on laughing. And that was like the last thing I remember. I put in my headphones after that. I was like, okay, I need to focus up. So I put in my headphones. We were close to Nippon. And I usually listen to music before I actually go on the night or before we even get there to get my head in the game. I usually try to mentally prepare and do a little bit of uh, visualization. And so I put my headphones in, closed my eyes, put my head down. And that was the last thing I remember. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. So in a sense, I was pretty lucky for that. And then Afterwards, I actually don't remember anything from that point up until four days um, after the crash. So that's like completely washed, but I was still like talking to people. Um, I was still being able to have communication to walk to it, Yeah, it was super weird and they call it post-traumatic amnesia. And so I think the brain injury definitely inflected that. And I cornered my first responder, I was supposedly walking around on the scene and I don't remember that whatsoever. And I don't remember talking to him. I don't remember getting into ambulance. Like, I don't remember a thing. So there's a lot, lots of things that I still really don't know. And people could even relate it. Like I've never been blacked out, but like when people are blacked out, but still functioning and then they don't remember it the next day. I was like the same type of thing, but um, yeah, it's, it's really weird. And then first thing I remember is waking up in the hospital being really confused. And that was four days later. You know, the part of your book aside from the, the, you telling your story is listening to your parents tell their story of those four days, really. Yeah. Because they were there like right from the moment they were waiting for you in, mm -hmm. in, in that town, waiting for you to arrive. They were having supper and they, you know, they suddenly saw ambulances and police cars going by and, uh, you know, one thing led to another and then they tried to get to the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this desperate attempt to try to find out, where you were, if you were alive or not. Mm -hmm. um, so their story is is remarkable enough, but in, in so many ways, it was them that helped 
piece together for you what had happened. Yeah, 100%. And they, it was literally, they were there, like you said, right on the scene. And yeah, like they were 10 feet away from the bus. And so for them to even be there and see that is, I couldn't imagine. And even those first responders being there and seeing that, or even the people survive, survivors seeing some of that, uh, it's so, I feel terrible for them and nobody should ever have to go through that. But um, yeah, they, they pieced it all together and their strength and courage throughout this whole process is something that I super admire and respect and try to emulate because that would not be easy talking about it from their standpoint. And they saw the worst of the worst. They saw me at my worst ever in my life. And so for them, their strength is something that I really admire and respect. So this book is a story about family. It's it's just, there are so many stories within this book. It's so many levels to it, but part of it is, is family, your family. You and your parents who've been through so much in your life beyond this, you know, this, this is, you know, tragic enough, this story, mm-hmm. but there were so many different elements to your family story of, you know, your sickness as a child, the fact that you're a diabetic, your dad's uh, struggle, um, basically to stay alive in a key part of your younger life and yeah. how all of you kind of, it was more than just hanging together. I mean, you guys went out of your way to be with each other at all these critical moments, especially for you, you know, as a young, potential young hockey star, um, you know, living away from your parents from a, a young age. And yet the way you all tended to get together, whether it meant driving through the middle of the night to get to a hospital to see wh- whichever one of you was uh, in trouble yeah. at that time. But the the book is a story about family on so many different levels, isn't it? It is. It really is. And I, that was one of the key features I wanted the team to be was family because everyone has a family. And for me, my family is so special and I, I'm not going to be the person I am today without them. And it's not even just my immediate family. It's the other external family too. It's that community. It's my teammates, it's my coaches, it's my teachers. There's so many people that have shaped me to be the person I am today. And I think they are all family to me, especially being the only child and having like, best friends and going to places. I just think that I, I, my view of family is a lot larger than some other people's. And I'm so thankful for everybody in my life who has helped me to be the person I am today. Another level of family in this book is, and you kind of hinted at it there, was your fellow players, teammates, who have played with you throughout your life. You know, you heard from some of those who uh, must have been gone back to your Tim Horton days or whatever, uh, you know, the, the youngest ones were. Um, and, and, and that, I guess, in some ways surprised me, the number of contacts you got in the days when you were, you were able to read mail and, and have some sense of what was going on around you. But the number of letters you got from former teammates who were now playing in different parts of the U.S. at different colleges or different teams this sense of, of family within that hockey community of kids your age uh, is quite is quite something to to read about when you're not familiar with that kind of um, you know fact that so many people are so close. Yeah, yeah, I know you're right completely. And even having my buddies fly back from all over, like from Vermont, um, I guess, yeah, like Omaha, Arizona uh Syracuse like it was just it was crazy just to think about where everybody was coming from and how they wanted to see me and even like Langley it's just like I'm just super grateful to have such tight-knit friends and even like buddies that you get in hockey that you go and you're like teammates but then they leave and they're literally your brothers and I think that's something super special especially in the hockey community and any team actually this can apply to work too some of your work co-workers can be some of your best friends for life and even with school, some of your classmates be your best friends. And so in a hockey world, we were lucky enough to form really tight bonds. And their support at me when I was my lowest was something that I'm super grateful for. And it helped me heal, too. It was something special just to see them walking to the hospital when you don't expect them to be there. So uh, seeing them is really definitely something special. That must have been quite something when you're, you're in the hospital bed. You've been there for... How long were you in hospital at the beginning? I was in there for 21 days. Uh, so not that long, but still long. Sure. Hey, that's you know, three weeks. It's a long time. Um, but as you say, not, not as long as some of your 
teammates who were there for mm-hmm. for much longer than that. But it must have been quite something to be lying there in your bed at you know whatever day fifteen or something and look up and suddenly see some kid who you used to play with a few years before you haven't heard of or perhaps haven't touched base with suddenly walking in from you know from another part of the world almost yeah to see yeah. you it's, it's it's like it's, it leaves me speechless even like the, even the messages or the videos um one of my old teammates was playing in minnesota duluth at ben pat and they ended up winning the national championship for the ncaa division one and he sent me a video with him he's like dolly this is for you and it was like him holding a piece of the net and they're doing like their team like get together after the win and just like those little things meant the world to me and even the external of my own life like support of the whole nation of the whole world was just overwhelming of love and gratitude like i'm so grateful for it like it's just it showed really how tight of a community we can be and how we can come together as a nation and i think there was definitely some beauty in that aspect well the nation sure did come together i mean we still on our porch here in stratford ontario we still got the hockey sticks we put out there for wow. that reason and you'll see a lot of it in in town and in little towns across uh, across the country in some ways almost more small communities than big communities oh, i'm not trying to suggest that people weren't you know moved because uh, they were terribly moved in, in every mm-hmm. city in the country but there's something about small towns and their connection with with junior hockey and how important these teams are to each community. I mean, it's almost like a lifeblood of, of some communities to have that team where they all get together to cheer for, even in the, in the dark years when the teams aren't necessarily performing that well, but it is a part of their life. It's a part of their community. And, uh, and so in that way, everybody identified with it because it was like their, their team, like their town and their team, it could have been them yeah, uh, because sure. buses, buses too, right? Buses. Oh, yeah. that's a part everybody, of everybody goes on a bus in their life. Like I, it's hard to find a person that's never been on a bus and the bus feels like a safe space too. Like I know some of the best fun times are on a bus playing cards or joking around with somebody on the bus. I, I remember even being a kid in elementary school and taking the bus home every day. And it was just like no seatbelts. You think you're fine. You just sit in your seat. You talk to the person beside you. You play games. You rock paper scissors. Like just stuff like that, where you have no worries in the world. It's just a happy space. You're safe. Like nothing can happen to you. And then, sure enough, some things like this do happen, and that's part of life. And uh, so I think everybody can relate to that aspect of being on a bus and feeling that kind of sense of security. And then also having that connection with other people. Has, have you been on a bus since? Yes, I have actually. I went on a bus back uh, in June, actually, of 2018. So a couple months after, I took a bus to the Washington Capitals game uh, versus Vegas. And now I've been in the NHL Sunday Cup Finals. And how'd that feel? Not the, was, not, not the game, but the bus. The game is awesome. The bus, it was actually uncalled for. I thought they were going to take a shuttle. So I was saying like, it was going to be a van or something. And they pulled up in a bus and like a, a coach bus. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so then uh, there's only like me and about five others on the bus or parents and maybe five others. And so I went and sat down and kind of like looked around. I was like, wow, I'm back on the bus. And it didn't really hit me. I saw the bus pulling up and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And I went on. I was like, whoa, I'm in a bus. And I was sitting in Mark Cross's spot. So like my parents, like, I'm sitting in Mark Cross's spot. And they're like, and they, they hit them. Like, they're like, oh my goodness, hit them that. This is the first time I was on a bus. And they completely forgot about that too. Not even forgot, but they just completely weren't focused on that aspect of me being on the bus for the first time. I was like, yeah, you guys are sitting in Darcy's spot. And then they're like, oh my goodness, like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, like, I'm, I'm actually okay. Like, this isn't that bus and it isn't like the odds of it happening again are super slim. Do I have my seatbelt here? Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's not, it's not going to happen. If it does, I'll be safe with the seatbelt. Like, um, I think there's so much strength in going back to the darkest places you can and try to find the positives in it. And so for me, being on a bus is probably one of the darker places I could go. And I wanted to overcome that. You know, I think we all understand a just how violent those those seconds must have been uh, on impact. 
But I didn't realize it as much until I read in your book about I now I can't remember now whether it was you or one of your 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 pals um, who was sitting I think in row twelve, and yet when it was all over, he had impacted on his, his skin or or yours mm-hmm. the five C, yeah, which was, was the seat seven. That was you. So that was the, the 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 seat seven rows ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah, so I was in 12 and I uh, row 12. And so, yeah, it, it was, I don't even know how it happened, to be honest, but obviously I was in an aisle seat, row 12, and uh, it was on the driver's side. And I must have, when we did collide with the trailer of the semi, I must have honestly flew forward out of my seat and hit my right side of my head because I fractured my right skull, right side of my skull. And then I must have bounced and hit my eye, my left eye, on a 5C, and then fell again on my head and got a puncture wound in it. And so I don't remember that at all, like I said, but it's all speculation right now, and I'll probably never remember it. But I think that was the big trauma was doing that. And I would have flew because I obviously broke my neck and my back as well. So, um it would have been like pretty, pretty severe and serious of a situation. Now, I got to be careful with how much I ask you because this book is so good. You want to read it. Uh, you want to <laughs> listen, listen to it this way. Uh, and I, you know, I just went through, I had a, I had a book a couple of months ago and I did a lot of these interviews, the pre-interviews. And I, I, did, I didn't want to talk about all the people who were in the book because I wanted to make sure people got the book, right? I didn't yeah. want to give it all away in the interview. So yeah. I, let, me, let, let me pull back and just ask a couple of general questions. But there, I, I don't want to overdo this, but I, I think you, you've got, this, this book is, is really good. There's so many parts about it. That um, that really stick in certainly in my mind. Um, anyway, the uh, uh, what I was going to ask you about there, there's a sentence you wrote. It's one of the shortest sentences in the whole book. It's only four words long. It comes in around page two sixty five or something like that, and it's very simple. It says, "I am a miracle." Yeah, so that's all it says. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. Tell me about why you are a miracle. Well, yeah, due to the severity of my brain injury and based on the scans, uh, the doctors have deemed me as a miracle. But it goes way deeper than that. We didn't really know actually how serious my brain was. And my parents didn't even know in that four-day phase how serious my brain was. And it actually took a phone call from my general practitioner and they called my dad saying, I'm super, super sorry about the tragedy. And my dad's like, yeah, like, there's nothing we could do. Like, it's just, we're speechless right now. It's so hard to take it all in. And he was like, yeah, I know. Like, I am like super, super sorry. And like, I know kill will never be the same. And he's like, yeah, like we're working through it. Um, and he'll, he'll hopefully be okay. And kind of become himself again. He's like, no, like I know he can't walk or talk or remember your guys' names. And my dad was like, what do you mean? And the guy was like, well, like he, based on the scan, like he shouldn't be able to walk, talk, or remember your guys' names. Like my dad was like, well, he was just talking to us, like not too long ago, like just now. <laughs> and so anyways, my doctor didn't believe it. And he came in and we walked in. I was like, hi, Dr. Likos. And I guess he fell to the floor and started crying. He just couldn't get over it. And that was when it really hit me and my parents, how serious and severe my brain injury was. And then on top of that, with my fracture in my neck, I had none that were um, unstable. And so if they were unstable in my neck or my back, I would have been paralyzed. And so I'm very, very grateful that they were stable. And so those are like the two big things that deem me as a miracle because I should be honestly probably in a vegetative state, not be able to remember my name, how to walk or talk and paralyzed from my neck down. And so the fact that I'm here and able to do so well and it's something that lots of neurologists and even doctors and other people have deemed me as a miracle so it's something i take a little bit weird i don't call myself ever a miracle uh i obviously did there in the book but it was just because that's what i've been told my ever since and i'm so thankful and grateful to 
have my wits with me still and to be myself and to not have many lingering effects from this tragedy. And it's, yeah, I think it's just something that leaves me honestly so, so grateful and thankful. There's, there's no other words to describe it for me. Well, part of the credit, obviously, for that goes to you and your resilience, goes to your family, goes to your teammates who stayed close to you, um, and it goes to healthcare workers. And, you, and you're not shy about talking about that and that special bond that you, you had. There's this, the story of how, when it was a year or so later, when for a different reason you ended up in the hospital and one of, yeah. the, one of the nurses had been there that night and it looked after you that night and she, she almost broke down in tears when she saw you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the pieces I really want to touch on too, is like just showing how healthcare workers are affected by these things too. And it's not just the people going through it. It's the other people that are trying to help you. And she, yeah, I feel terrible that she was crying. I reflected those feelings on her and it's just, it, it goes to show just how much, you can have it on a person impact on a person based on the situations and also how stressful their jobs are. I couldn't imagine having 29 people rush into emergency room and you're trying to triage them and take care of them while you're dealing with your own factors of Holy crap, like what just happened? This is such a huge event. Like there's a lot being thrown at them and the way that they've handled the situation was amazing. I think it's not easy. You can never be perfect either. And so I am super grateful for them saving me and saving my teammates and doing their best every day and not just that day, but literally doing their best every day. And so you're right. Like there's, there's that definite that connection that you have with them. And I made a lot of friends as well as in the hospital too. And I think that's the cool part is like you become attached to them. They become attached to you. So the fact that I was able to, make some friends with some nurses and doctors and physiotherapists and occupational therapists and all those different kinds of uh, people in the medical field is something super special. And that's kind of why I wanted to go into it too. It validated the fact that that was the right path for me as a student and scholar. You want to be a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. Now, when did yeah. you just, des- when did you decide that? So this is a long time actually has been coming when I was 13, I got diagnosed with Sherman's disease which is a curature in your spine. And that was when I actually first went to chiropractic. So I was 13 and I absolutely was so fascinated. I had so many questions for them and I just wanted to know every single detail. And I literally, I couldn't, I actually had to leave and then come back and ask some more questions when he was off. And so that was when I first fell in love with it. And then I did it throughout my whole hockey career just to keep maintenance and uh, just to stay healthy. And right after the tragedy, it really validated my reasonings because I loved how versatile it was and how it made me feel too. And I thought it was probably one of the bigger things in my recovery process. Having vertebral fractures is definitely not easy. Um, and I had to let those heal first. But then after to like make sure they were aligned uh, to make sure my body felt good was, I definitely credit that to chiropractic treatment. And then also the fact that I can have that personal connection with people too. Uh, I've always wanted to help and give back and be a support to people. And I feel like in that career, I have an impact on 50 people per day and I want to make the most of my time with them and enjoy it and hopefully have that positive impact on their life. And so when they come, it's the best five minutes of their day, 10 minutes of their day, 15, and then they leave and then they want to come back again and get to build that bond with them because I think the bond is something super special. Here's my last question, Caleb. What, what do you want people to take away from this story, from this book? Well, I, I think uh, lots of different things. I love, love them to take away hope, resilience, and family. I think those are three key themes throughout the book. But then I also hope that they can find goodness in themselves that if they do get the book, that a portion of the proceeds will be going to Stars Air Ambulance, who are help, who save lives on April 6th, but then save lives every day. And I think there's honestly nothing more valuable than having a second chance of life. And then I also want them to take away just hopefully something for them. Hopefully there's something in there that they can take away or apply to their life or even just tell a friend, Hey, like, I think that you should read this because of this, or even the personal connection to how we all have our own crossroads in life. And in that we need to find the positive and the beauty of those crossroads and to also enjoy it all and to enjoy our life because our life could be taken in an instant 
or it can be changed in an instant. So to find those crossroads and navigate them and to know that life is hard, but you can get through it. Okay. I lied. I have one more question. (laughs) (laughs) All good. Yeah. Do you dream? Do I dream? Dream as in which kind of form dream? Well, dream, dream. Do you dream about that night, that day? I actually don't. I don't have any dreams about that. I don't suffer any PTSD or um, anything like that. I'm I'm super grateful that I don't. And I have taken the right steps to limit myself from that too. I've stayed away from alcohol. I've been open and vulnerable, talking to people about how I'm feeling. Um, I've always been an open book, but now obviously I'm even a little bit more of an open book. But uh, I've, I've really wanted to heal properly and not take any shortcuts in my healing journey. And so now I can look at myself and I'm, I'm happy with how I've healed. And it still is a healing process though. And every day, like I said, I always think about those 16 that aren't here. And I try to carry them forward with me in a positive way. I try to move forward in their light and to put myself in their shoes. And if I wasn't here, what would I want survivors to do? Would I want them to be happy? Of course I would. And would I want them to live their life to their fullest? Of course. So that's what I try to do every day. And hopefully I'm, they're proud of me. Well, Caleb, uh, you're a remarkable young man, and I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. And I, I and the book is, it's hard to look at that book and say, hey, I really enjoyed that book. <laughs> I guess it's a tough read, but it it's a rewarding read as well. And mm-hmm. I'd, uh, I'd highly recommend uh, people to read it. Thank you for doing this, Caleb. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me on here. It's honestly an honor to be talking to you right now, and it's a privilege. So I'm very thankful for this opportunity, and uh, it's great getting to question on my book. It's, it's, it's a little bit weird, different situation, but I'm super grateful, and I just, I'm excited. I'm excited, and I just hope people enjoy it. I think they will, and they'll learn from it. Take care. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And uh, wishing you all the best as well. I saw your book is out too. I'm actually going to buy a copy in person here. I want to go to the library and get it when I'm going to get mine. So it'll be a fun one. <laughs> well, it's a, it too is a story of resilience, not this kind of resilience that you went through, but resilience nevertheless. What would be the key themes you think? What would be your key themes? Well, I think it's facing up to the challenges that are in front of you and, and being determined to, uh, to deal with them. And yeah. as you have done, I mean, the, the stories that, uh, that I tell in my book, they're very, you know, they're all different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different professions, and different things that happened to them. They could have been fighting racism. They could have been recovering from, as some have done, a, a bad automobile crash. Uh, but others, a disease, there are all kinds of different things, but it's, it's that common theme is one of resilience and determination and belief, you know, behind you there, you've got your, your yeah. belief signature uh, on your bookcase. Yeah. And, and that's one of the common themes uh, awesome. through all this. I'm excited. Good. I'm excited to grab mine then. And that's awesome that you got a book too. That's great. So I'm glad you got that. Okay. Thank you so much for everything. Seriously. This means the world. So. Thank, Thank you. you for having me on here. <laughs> Isn't he great? I told you, this is a remarkable young guy. Caleb Dahlgren, the book's called Crossroads. And then you love that. Here's a guy who survives a serious brain injury, a broken neck, a broken back, and countless other injuries. And here we are in the interview less than three years later, and he wants to interview me about my book. <laughs> so I guess he's... He's, you know, he wants to be a chiropractor. Sounds like he could be a, a journalist, too. Um, he was at his home in Saskatoon, in his room, with his little Believe signature uh, written on the, on the wall, or on the wall behind him. Uh, and it was, great, it was great to talk to him. Now, I want to talk to somebody else, one of the first people to see him, somebody you know very well, was there within 36 hours. And when we come back, we'll do just that. We'll talk to Ron McLean. As we said, after the Humboldt Broncos crash, the country and the world responded. Literally millions and millions of dollars was donated to the cause of those who'd lost their lives and 
for the survivors. It was a remarkable outpouring from across the country and across the world. And as you know, we talked about with Caleb there, the hockey sticks issue of people putting hockey sticks on their front porches. But one of the first people there, within, I think, 36 hours of the crash. Remember, the crash happened on a Friday night. So on Saturday night, Ron McLean was doing hockey night in Canada. By Sunday morning, he was there. I had a quick chat with Ron about what all this meant. So, Ron, you and Don were there within within hours, literally within hours. Uh, take us through that. What was that like? Well, I always liken it, uh, Peter, to a paradise built in hell, which is a story uh, that I borrow from Rebecca Solnit, a great author. Uh, she described after a hurricane had touched down in the Maritimes, that situation of people coming together and getting through something, a paradise built in hell. And that's what ICU was like for me. Um, honest to God, when I think about... Uh, the carnage uh, that anybody survived. I, I just think of the doctors and nurses at Royal University Hospital. Everybody was so swollen, Peter. That That's the first thing that struck you, uh, is that each body was almost three times its ordinary size. And, uh, and there was a calm in the treatment of it. Uh, you know, there was such certainty in uh, the approach that was being taken by everybody, including the family, the friends, you remember what Kevin Geringer, the president, was like in, in dealing as kind of the, the triage person from the hockey side of things. So that, you know, the first uh, couple I met were the Smiths and their boy Tyler was uh, in an induced coma. And Tyler, of course, remembers none of uh, any of that time, just like Caleb in the book describes those days that go dark. Um, and he, the only reason they knew who Tyler Smith was, was on stairs, Stars Air Ambulance, he knew his mom's phone number. He didn't know who he was. He had no identification, but he remembered his mom's phone number, and that's how they identified him. And that was all part of it. You'll recall there was one misidentification. Uh, and then I was dealing with uh, the Stresniskis and the Wassermans, each of whom had sons with spinal cord injury. And I can remember Grape saying to me at one point when I was speaking with the Wassermans, he said, Ron, you're not a priest. You know, we were, we were all just swirling through these i mean it's 36 hours after the crash and i was explaining to them because i'd done a lot of work with spinal cord uh, uh, the canadian paraplegic association honorary chair look life is going to be different but life will be wonderful and i, I promise you that it's way too soon to even try and process all this uh, and then i uh well i won't get into the parker tobin xavier labelle situation but you know that was the mix-up and that, you know, just to sit at the bedside of who we thought was Parker Tobin and Don and I are there and I say, you know, I'm whispering in his ear and it's actually Xavier LaBelle that I'm whispering to. Uh, hey, Parker, it's Ron McLean. Don Sherry and I are here. We're just going to do a little bedside coach's corner for you. And, and the body, he starts to rise up and the nurses have to put him back down. He's in an induced coma as well. So imagine all, all this, uh, God, the heartbreak of the Tobins are so great to this day. They're part of everything. You know, that family, that the 29 uh, sets of parents uh, and families, uh, they're always together. And then I, you know, we so we continue on. Caleb Dahlgren, I, he's, he's on a different floor. So the next floor we go up to are those who are in. And by the way, I do want to mention Dana Braun, too. I had the experience of holding her hand. Uh, she, she would die the following day. But her mom and I were holding hands with Dana. And uh, she said, I have two daughters, each of whom has brown eyes, but this is my brown eyed girl. And they loved her, the trainer of the team. So then I go upstairs and Grayson Cameron's the first room we're going to go into. And his mom says, you know, Grayson had a, a friend die in Alberta in a car accident. So he has been through so, so much, Ron. Be really careful, really gentle as you speak to Grayson. And uh, it was, you know, a nice visit with Grayson. Then the move across the hall, Braden Camrood hops out of bed right away. So he's one of the more well-off. And he says, uh, Ron, uh, Don, it's nice to meet you. I'm going to introduce you to Caleb Dahlgren here in a moment. Uh, but I just want you guys to know I'm going to come back next year and I'm going to honor our captain Logan Schatz by playing again. And I thought, wow, who says a thing like that, let alone does it? He did come back and play first in Humboldt and now at Alaska. 
And then we meet uh, Caleb and his father, Mark, as soon as we come around the curtain, Mark says, oh, and who might these two be? Uh, you know, so he had his sense of humor, right? Shocking right. in that whole circumstance. And they were giving uh, Caleb a needle. He was about to go off for spine surgery. Uh, Matthew Gamersik, who's one of the players, was uh, who kind of walked away from the crash. Matthew was at his bedside holding one of the needles in, in his right arm while a nurse was applying something to the left arm. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, as I told you, we, we have just a few minutes here. The, the biggest thing, I, I two things I take away is, one, when you read the book, you'll see the thank yous, and you've, you've read it. Yeah. The thank you section at the end really sums up the experience all of us have who have ever been connected with it. Uh, that gratitude just pours out of Caleb at every moment. Uh, and the other thing I always say uh, now is on reflection, you know, I'm 61 in April, all this time in hockey, you always have a little bit of a feeling like, what are you doing with your life? Is You know, this is a trivial pursuit, this game. Is it worth it? And the humble Broncos, after 60 years around it, answer the question to that resoundingly. Yes, it is meaningful. It is significant. Uh, it does have value. And it all kind of the epicenter of that answer has to be humbled. Well, let me take that a little, a, a little further because... You know, so so much of this country is built around the, the you know not only the mystique of hockey, but in especially in small towns uh, across the country, hockey is so important to the community spirit. Um, and you know, the arenas you know are filled on Friday nights and other nights, even if the team isn't doing that well, because it's like part of the town, and the whole bus thing is part of the experience. Um, you're a hockey historian uh, as, as much as anybody I know. So in the, in the moments we have uh, left here, give, give me your sense of what this story has meant to the greater hockey story. I think, you know, we did experience the swift current Bronco crash and Patrick Nogier, who's a police officer in Saskatoon, was the one who, he was on that. He was, he was a member of that team and on that bus. And now as a police officer and phoned me to say, could you and Don pop out? Uh, I think, you know, we've, we've experienced crashes, uh, death, um, but I don't think we've ever had as incredible example of, of how it's much more than just a game, much more than just the team, the hockey players involved in the game. It's everything around the team. Uh, and Humboldt somehow epitomized that. And as I said, when I saw Kevin Gerringer uh, in the crosshairs of trying to answer questions the following day, and you know his, his whole life was as an educator, so he had the wherewithal. Darcy Hogan, the coach, when I go out and do a speech in Steinbach, Manitoba, Paul Dick, the head coach of the Pistons of the Manitoba Junior League, he plays phone messages from Darcy Hogan, coach of the Broncos, that he would receive. Uh, the influence uh, right around uh, Canada, uh, the organization, all stems from what they were as a tight-knit hockey club in, in Humboldt. And, and to picture just a junior hockey team on the prairies in a small town in Saskatchewan, having all that, having having the best of the Montreal Canadiens or the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, and having the best of us as citizens, you know, they, they are the ultimate in sport, in society and in storytelling. Wow. It, you know, it, 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 the book is so gripping. Um, you know, Caleb has really done a good job in putting this together because it's, it's about so much. It's not just about hockey. It's not just about the team. It's about family and it's about community. And it draws, you know, a, a line through all of those uh, to give us a sense of a, a very special part of, uh, of Canadian life um, that we can take from this book. So just a, a quick final thought from Yeah, you. I think, you know, he, he's an only child. So you you know, Anita and Mark, his mom and dad, uh, his father loved to live big. And then his father, you know, had a very serious illness, illness following a car crash. And, and he was, you know, effectively AWOL for a few years at a, at a pivotal point in, in his Caleb's career. Uh, so you you learn he was a type one diabetic. Uh, there there are so many elements, and and the other thing that really strikes me about him is he was an assistant captain. So Logan Shots I referred to earlier, he wore the A, which means right away he's a leader on this rather incredible unit. Uh, so that's why I think he's such a great person to, to do the book. Uh, it's just. Uh, you know, there's so many blessings in in the story. I've played hockey with, uh, you know, Joseph. Uh, 
Chris Joseph lost his son Jackson in the crash and he was seated next to Braden Camrood and I heard the story from Braden about what Jackson was like and they they keep passing on these stories of the 16 angels which I think you know as Canadians uh, you know we we are such a wide landscape uh, to, to know one another is very difficult but in the story of the Broncos uh, it's easy that uh, they make it really easy to understand how we are Canadian connected by hockey Ron, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Me too, Peter. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Ron McLean from Hockey Night in Canada. And as I said, you know, he, he's probably the best hockey historian I know. He, he knows so many stories. He never forgets names. Um, and he knows this story. And he knows it uh, from firsthand experience and from the fact he's studied it uh, from a distance as well as close up. So the book is called Crossroads. The author, Caleb Dahlgren, 23 years old. In the next month or so, he'll be graduating from York University and then heading on to uh, become a chiropractor. We're coming up on the third anniversary of the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. It happened on April 6th. 2018. And as I said earlier, I don't think any of us will forget where we were, how we heard about this, how we reacted to it, how it touched us, how it touched our communities, and what it meant for Canada. Because it did. We went into this kind of period of national morning televised the kind of memorial service that was held for these fellows who lost their lives and to support the survivors like Caleb and then TSN the sports network put its resources behind televising the first game back for the Humboldt Broncos which was in the following hockey season. And we followed at times some of the stories, the individual stories of the survivors. So if you can, grab a copy of Crossroads. It's a remarkable book by a remarkable young guy, Caleb Dahlgren. All right, that's it for this special edition of The Bridge I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, last aired on December 23rd.